this time, let's turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 9, as we begin our study. Now the children of Israel had conquered Jericho and Ai, which were strong cities. The kings that were in the land of Canaan, where they were coming, felt that their only hope of stopping this migration of these people into the land would be by a combined effort, pulling all of their armies, all of their resources, in one massive assault against Israel. Now, this strategy was really prompted by the fact that the Gibeonites, which did cover an area of several cities, had determined that their only hope of survival was by a peace treaty. So, we start out the ninth chapter, the first three verses, talking about the kings that were getting together to present a united front against this invasion, lest they would be picked off kingdom by kingdom. They felt that they should all get together. Then, beginning with verse 4, they tell of this Gibeonite conspiracy to develop a peace tree with the Israelites as they were coming into the land. Now, the Gibeonites had heard of how God had delivered these people out of Egypt and how he had destroyed the Egyptians. They had heard of how the kings of Og and Sihon of their kingdoms on the other side of Jordan had been conquered by Israel. They heard, of course, that Jericho had fallen, that Ai had fallen, so they determined that their best course of action was to make a peace treaty. However, they also knew that these people that were coming into the land, the Israelites, had no intention of making any peace treaties with the inhabitants of the land. For they were under the orders of God to utterly drive out all of the inhabitants of the land, to destroy, to drive out, not to make any covenant with them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God commands not to make any covenant with those in the land. So they knew that their only hope of making a covenant was by a disguise, which they perpetrated. They got some guys together who put on some old ragged clothes and old clotted shoes. They had some old wineskins that were falling to pieces that they bound up. They had some dry, moldy bread. So they came to the camp of Israel and they said, We have come a long journey, but the fame of your God has spread through the world and we've come to make peace with you. And they said, how do we know that you're not our neighbors? And they said, oh, listen, when we left home, this bread was hot in our hands, and now look at it, it's, it's all dry and moldy. That's how far we've come. Our shoes were new on our feet, but look how ragged they are, and we've really come a long way. So the children of Israel took of their victuals, and inquired not of the Lord, or sought not to counsel from the mouth of the Lord. Joshua 9.14 And they made this covenant, or peace treaty, with the Gibeonites, and they swore unto them by God that they would have sort of a mutual defense pact, that they would be allied together. So as the children of Israel moved on from Ai, they started coming into the area of the kingdom of the Gibeonites, these cities. So as they started to deploy the troops to attack the cities, the men said, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. And they said, what do you mean? And the Gibeonites told them, 
we've just made a pact with you, and you've sworn to us by God that you would not attack us. So they honored the pact they had made. They realized that they had been deceived, but they still honored that pact that they had made with the Gibeonites. However, the people began to murmur against Joshua because of his strategic blunder. It is interesting to note here that this is really the second mistake that Joshua made as a leader. The first mistake was in the case of Ai, where they sent up only a few thousand troops, and the men of Ai came out against them and defeated them. Now, now that when Joshua cried unto the Lord, the Lord told him the reason for the defeat was because of the sin that was in the camp, that one of the children of Israel had taken the accursed thing out of the spoils of Jericho, which were all to go to God. So Joshua then sought the Lord, got rid of the sin, and the Lord directed them on how the conquest of Ai should go. Now, the problem with Ai was his failure to pray and seek counsel from God before they deployed the troops to attack the city. And the same problem existed here. It was a failure to pray and inquire of God concerning the Gibeonites. They just looked at the outward circumstances. They saw the dry, moldy bread and the ragged clothes, and they were, well, they were just simply deceived. Now they had sought counsel from God, but he came to Eliezer, the high priest, and inquired of the Lord concerning these people. The Lord would have showed to them that these people were fakes. They would have realized that these men were just seeking to disguise themselves as having come on a long journey. But in reality, they were fakes. But the Lord would have revealed that. They inquired not of the Lord. Their mistake was that of failure to seek God's counsel. It got them into an ungodly alliance. How many times we have found ourselves in ungodly situation because we failed to seek God first? Oh, for sure. When we get into these conditions, then we seek God like, like nothing else. But if we would only seek God first, we could be spared so many of these tragic experiences that we encounter in our life. So the failure to seek God's guidance led them into this alliance with the Gibeonites. But having once made it, they honored it. However, Joshua called them and said, All right, you guys, why did you deceive us like this? And they said, Hey, we knew that God was with you, that God was turning the land over to you, and we feared for our lives, and we felt that the only way that we could survive was by this little ruse. And Joshua said, all right. But as a result of this, you guys are going to have to be the hewers of wood and become our servants. And they said, that's fine. We'll agree to that. We'll be your servants. We will serve you, but we're just glad to be alive. So the people of Gibeon and the cities of Gibeon were spared. Now the names of the city of the Gibeonites are listed there. In the listing of the names in verse 17, the last name, Kirjath-Jerim, is an interesting name and city because it was at Kirjath-Jerim that the Ark of the Covenant was kept up 
until the time of David when he moved it from there to Jerusalem. So one of the cities of the Gibeonites became the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Now when these five kings heard that the Gibeonites had made this league with the children of Israel, then they, de they decided to attack the Gibeonites, more or less as traitors. So they came against the Gibeonites. Chapter 10. Now in verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent an urgent message to Joshua that they were being attacked. And they said, now we have this mutual defense pact with you, so come to our aid. And Joshua, honoring the pact that he had made, took his men of war in a forced march all night long, and they came to the area of Gibeon, where the Gibeonites were being attacked by these kings with all their chariots and horses and all. The Lord spoke to Joshua before going into battle, and he promised Joshua that he would be with him. Verse 8, chapter 10. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into your hand. There shall not be one man of them stand before you. And Joshua came upon them suddenly, and he went up from Gilgal all night long, this forced march. The Lord discomfited them before Israel. He slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the way to Beth Horon, and to Azekah, and to Makeda. And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel, that they were in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. And there were more that died with their hailstones than those whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. And then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said, Son, stand still upon Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened to the voice of man. For the Lord fought for Israel. Verses 8 through 14. Now this is a very unusual event indeed. And whether you get to the miraculous events in the Bible... That's all it takes to trigger some people, especially those who do not believe in God or those who have an anthropomorphic concept of God. They think of God in terms of a man and limited as a man. The miracles always create doubts and problems in the minds of people. And of course, they then begin to exaggerate the problems that they see. For instance, one of the things that they make fun of with this particular passage, you find it quite incredible that if the earth should suddenly stand still, and here you are standing on the earth and it is rotating at almost a thousand miles an hour, that if it would suddenly stand still, your body would just still be going a thousand miles an hour. So all the people would just be sort of wiped out. We'd all go flying off the earth if it was suddenly standing still. So they envisioned the impractability of the earth just standing still. 
In other words, she said, sun, stand still. But we know that the earth is actually rotating on its axis, which makes the sun appear to rise and to set and so forth. So obviously it was, they say, the earth stopping on its axis. But then they saw all of these men flying off the earth because of it stopping so rapidly. However, there is nothing that indicated that it was a sudden stop, like, you know, hitting a brick wall. Now, if it, say, took six hours for it to stop, that would be equivalent to stopping your car from going 60 miles an hour and stopping your car to zero in 20 minutes, as far as the force that would be exerted against you. Now, I suggest that if you were going 60 miles an hour in your car and you brought it to a 20-minute stop, that you would hardly notice any inertia against your body at all. Now, if it should stop in eight minutes, it would be equivalent to stopping your car at 60 miles an hour in 30 seconds. You wouldn't even need your seatbelt for that. So there's nothing that indicated here that it came to a sudden jerky halt. God could have just put on the brakes and brought it to a stop in, say, eight or ten minutes. Again, the only way that you feel motion is by the jerks. You really don't discern motion except for the jerking motion. You on a train, a lot of times you don't even know the train is moving until you look out of the window. And then you see the station gradually going by or on an airplane so many times, you don't know that the airplane has actually started moving until you look out and you see the motion outside. But you don't necessarily feel the motion unless there are these jerks. So God could have brought the earth to a halt in an eight to 10 minute time period. And no one would have gone flying out into space and no one would have really noticed a sudden jerky stop at all. However, if there was a long day, Joshua saw that it was, you know, they needed more time to wipe out the enemy. And so he said, son, stand still. And that would be a, quite a thing in the sight of all the people. I mean, you're going to really look like a fool or, or a super powerful guy, one or the two. And in the sight of all the people, he said, son, stand still. Now, whether or not he was expecting it to do it or not, Nevertheless, it did it for the about the space of a day, giving them time to totally obliterate the enemy. Now, notice that along with this, there was a tremendous hailstorm, that more people were killed by the hailstones than were killed by the sword. Now, there's a very interesting book entitled, entitled Worlds in Collision by Emanuel Velikovsky. Now, his theory is that the planet Venus entered into our solar system during the period of man's history upon the Earth. That the planet Venus has actually come within our solar system within the last 6,000 years, and that it is actually made two orbits, and on the second orbit it got fixed in its own orbit, and in alignment as the planets are around the Sun. It got locked into an orbit around the Sun the second time. The first time it orbited in, and now, according to his theory, it was about the time that the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt. 
He ties many of the plagues in Egypt to a close pass of the planet Venus to the Earth. The second close pass he times at this long day of Joshua. In fact, he accounts for the long day of Joshua as to have resulted from this near miss of the planet Venus to the Earth. And he believes that the Earth used to rotate the opposite direction on its axis, on its axis until this near pass. Now he theorized that if there was a long day in Joshua's time, that other periods or other places in the world, there would be recorded a long night. For instance, here in America, the Indians would have recorded a long night. If there was a long day there, there would have to be a long night here. That in different places in the world, it would be recorded as either, either a long afternoon or a long morning or whatever, as it related to the time there in Joshua. So he carefully, Vilikovsky, he carefully traced through the history of the Incan Indians. And sure enough, he found in their records the story of a long night over here when the sun didn't come up for the space of a whole night. Also of cataclysmic things that took place at that time, earthquakes, tremendous storms, violent storms and tidal waves, and all that type of thing. Because of course the earth stopping would create tremendous tidal waves by the movement of the water. And it would keep rolling faster than the earth and would create tremendous tidal waves. And he has gone through this approximate period of history and followed in the records of people around the world the stories of either long mornings, long afternoons, long nights, or long days and the cataclysmic things that took place at the same time. Now, Emanuel Velkowski, he's not a Christian. Neither is he necessarily a believer in God. He is a scientist who has a theory that the planet Venus came into our solar system during the time of recorded history. And he uses the Bible as one of the proofs. This particular long day of Joshua as one of the proofs. But in order to use the Bible as a proof, he also follows it and proves historically, well, that the event actually took place, showing it in the records, ancient records of peoples around the world. So I like his book. Not that I necessarily agree with the theory of the introduction of the planet Venus into our solar system at that particular time, yet I'm pretty open, and I, I found it very fascinating to think about. But the thing that I really enjoyed is his laying out of such conclusive proof for the skeptics who scoff at the idea of the sun standing still or the earth stopping on its rotation. Those who scoff at the idea as totally impossible and how he proves that it was an actual historic event. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been recorded around the world in the ancient records of history as it was. And he does a very masterful job in proving that such an event did take place, in case you happen to be a skeptic and need proof. But if you have a right concept of God, well, you don't need any proof. You can just believe it because God's word declared it. But some people have a problem believing just because God's word declares something, and they need some kind of proof, especially when you get into the stories which seem to be 
a little incredible, at least on the surface. If the guy could say, sun, stand still, and it would stand still in the heavens for a whole day, so such a thing is recorded in history outside of the Bible. And it is interesting that it did happen at that psychic moment when they were chasing these kings, and Joshua felt that he needed more daylight in order to wipe them out utterly, and so he commanded, and the sun stood still in the heavens. So the story of Joshua, which has brought a lot of skepticism and a lot of criticism against the Bible, as well as all of the miracles do, has pretty well been scientifically proven as much as you can prove anything with science and historic records. So you might find that book, Worlds in Collision, very fascinating. I did. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Now, there was no day like that before it or after it, after the Lord hearkened to the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Joshua 10.14 It is, of course, this theory also that at this time the earth became tilted on its axis, and there was a shift of the polar axis. Now it went to our 23 and a third degree kind of angle that the polar axis had in its relationship to the sun, which gives us actually now the ice caps in the north and in the south. And he has quite a bit to say about that too. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. But the five kings hid themselves in a cave. And so they came and told Joshua these five kings were hiding in, in the caves. So Joshua said, throw a bunch of stones over the cave, seal it up, and stand outside and guard the thing. Verses 15 through 18. So they went ahead then, and inasmuch as these men had come out of all the cities to fight, so the cities were, well, they were left pretty well defenseless at this point. So Joshua and the children of Israel started going around, and they took all the cities and the areas where these people would come from, this big battle against Gibeon. They went and they took all of these cities, with the exception of Jerusalem, a city that they did not take. But it lists the cities that they took. Lachish and Hebron and so forth. So then he ordered them to take the rocks down and bring these kings out. Then he tells some of these guys, put your feet on the necks of these kings. God is going to let you put your foot down on the necks of your enemies to defeat them. Verses 24 through 25. Then Joshua killed these kings and threw their bodies back into the cave hung them actually on five trees until evening, and then they threw their carcasses into the caves, and they threw the rocks over the caves, which remained there until that day that this particular book was written. So he went ahead and took all of these cities that had sent their armies out against them. Verse 42 of chapter 10. And all these kings and their land did Joshua take at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Verse 42. Now in verse 14 and verse 42, a declaration is that the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him unto the camp of Gilgal. Verse 43. Now there's a song later in the book of Judges that speaks of God using the stars and so forth in fighting for his people. There are those who call themselves theistic evolutionists, and they acknowledge God in the origins, God in an 
ambiguous kind of terminology, a force of power, that there was something that started the whole thing going. But once God started the whole process, once he started and created the universe, then he more or less just stepped back. He may have created the first cell, but then he stepped back and let all things sort of develop and evolve as far as all the life forms and everything. And it's known as theistic evolution. And it was an attempt to harmonize evolutionary thought with the Bible. Though it, it surely doesn't bring any harmony with the Bible, it creates more problems. Those who teach theistic evolution are more or less those who believe in the uniformitarianism concept of our universe and of the planet Earth. And their theory is pretty well described by Peter, who said, In the last days, scoffers would arise, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since our fathers have fallen asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. Second Peter 3, 3 and 4. The doctrine or the idea of Unitarianism is pretty well expressed in all things continue as they were from the beginning. In other words, there aren't any real changes, no real catastrophic kind of changes. You can explain everything in the geological column and everything as far as life processes are concerned by observable phenomena today. So the idea of uniformitarianism really is in direct contrast to the Bible. You cannot be a true believer in the Bible and be a uniformitarian. They are sort of mutually exclusive. They're on opposite poles. Now, this same fellow... Emanuel Vilikovsky also wrote another book, Earths in Upheaval, in which he totally and thoroughly destroys the idea of uniformitarianism, absolutely wipes it out with incontrovertible evidence. And he has twice set the scientists on the ears. His first book, Worlds in Collision, created quite a fervor in the scientific community because, of course, it also challenged the idea of uniformitarianism. But his second book, he attacks it directly. And he does a devastating job in piling up evidence that shows that things cannot be explained by a uniform pattern. That there had to be cataclysmic changes on the Earth's surface and so forth. Catastrophic changes that you cannot really explain all of the phenomena by the idea of uniformitarianism. In the book, Earth's in Upheaval, he gives some very solid evidence for the universal flood of Noah. Though he isn't really trying to prove the flood, he talks about the deposits of the bones and various animals that have been found in the caves in England. These bones are severely fractured. All of them seem to be deposited at the same time by some violent thrust. Saber-toothed tigers, along with rabbits and all kinds of animals that are really antagonistic toward each other, and yet they're all heaved in there and crushed and broken all at the same time and planted there. And he gives some powerful evidence of violent up upheavals, which of course the scriptures do testify, have taken place upon the earth in various periods of history. But God intervening. 
Now, you see, we are prone to subconsciously think of God as far off and unrelated to the affairs of our lives. And we so often think of God in a remote sense, not of one who is actively interested in me at this moment and what I am doing. I think of God as just being out there remote of me, sort of governing over the whole universe, but certainly he has no interest in me or in my daily problems. Now, one of the most important things that all of us need to develop is that consciousness of God's present with us at all times, in all places, and the realization that God is vitally interested, even with those just piddly little things about your life. God is concerned with you. He's concerned with those things that are worrying you. And the Bible speaks about God's ear being open to the righteous. When you call unto the Lord and God talks about not oppressing the poor, because when they cry unto me, the Lord said, I will hear and I will surely avenge their cause. Because when you're needing money, and you're there saying, oh God, I don't know what I can do about these bills. This guy's really pressing me, Lord. I don't know what to do. He's really pushing me to, against the wall. The Lord hears your cries, though you don't think that he does. Yet the Lord is vitally concerned in your life. And here's a guy just like you and me who is fighting a battle. They've got the enemy on the run, but it's getting towards evening. Ah, oh, man, if the sun goes down, we won't be able to finish wiping them out. Sun, stand still. And suddenly, the sun stands still in the heavens and stays in that spot all day long. Now, you may believe that God can heal your sore toe or an earache, but we don't think of God as really intervening in a dramatic, powerful way within our lives. At one time in my adult life, I, I delivered newspapers at night from around midnight to four in the morning. And I also had a full-time job, so sleep was very important when I could get it. Well, one of the downfalls of having four routes was that with 400 newspapers, there was the likelihood you were going to be short of papers. It was just a common thing. And then if I was short, I'd, I'd have to go back to the newspaper office and I would have to go and get the newspapers I needed to complete my route, which in turn would put me in a spot where I wouldn't be now able to sleep prior to going to my daytime job. There were an innumerable amount of times I asked the Lord this. Oh, Father, I know it's such a trivial thing that I would have enough newspapers, but God, I ask you in Jesus' name, make them sufficient that I may finish my route and get some sleep. And you know, he delivered on that prayer every time I prayed it. Every time. Now, I have to admit, I, I wasn't really expecting an answer. I was more just sort of complaining, more whining that I wasn't getting enough sleep. But then I began to discover that if I would ask God direct questions, <laughs> I would often get direct answers. And I realized that so many times that I had not because I had asked not. God was there. God is interested. God wants to work. 
He's not remote off somewhere in the universe. That's what Elijah was taunting those priests of Baal concerning their God. Well, maybe he's off somewhere on vacation, or maybe he's playing golf. Cry a little louder. But God is not remote and far off. He is vitally interested in you and in your life. Even in those little things that are troubling you. You're his child. He doesn't like to see you distressed. He doesn't like to see you worried or fretting. He wants to reach out and help you. Don't think of God as a way far off, untouchable, unreachable, unapproachable. As Paul said to the Athenian philosophers, the Epicureans, For in him we live, we move, and we have our being. God is interested in us, and God wants to demonstrate his presence. He wants to demonstrate his love his love to you. You have not because you ask not. James 4.2 Become aware of the presence of God. Begin to realize, hey, God is here. God is with me. So God demonstrated here in a very powerful way his interest, his presence to Joshua and to the people. Now, having conquered these kings, they really at this point conquered the major enemies within the land. The major conquests were made all at this one shot when these, came, these kings came out against them. So from there on, it was almost like going out and mopping up. Let's pray. Father, let our hearts know that you are in every part of our life. And Father, even what we think is mundane and maybe even boring, God, you are there. Wherever we go, Lord, as David said, I go to the heights of heaven, Lord, you are there. I go to the depths of hell, Lord, you are there. Father, you are everywhere. You are in everything that we do. And Father, it is absolutely mind-blowing that you are interested in me, that you are interested in my life and how that my life may go. And Lord, let me remember that every day. Lord, when things seem impossible, Father, let me ask you, Lord, help. That's all. Lord, help. Help us all. Help us be better people, knowing that your power is always around us. Father, we ask these things. In the name of your awesome son, Jesus, and all God's children said, Amen.